Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and a very warm welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute for Government, and I'm really delighted to be talking today to Annalise Dodds, Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. As you all know, she's been the MP for Oxford East since 2017. Very recent, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, brought her into his new shadow cabinet in April, drawing on her expertise. For three years, she was shadow financial secretary to the Treasury. She's also been in the past a member of the European Parliament for South East England. Annalise Dodds, a very warm welcome. Well, thank you very much indeed, Bronwyn. It's really good to be here and I've always enjoyed events held by the Institute for Government. I have to say I'm very excited that we even have a, an individualised hashtag for this event, which is very technologically sophisticated, but uh, genuinely it's, it's really, really good to be here. Thank you for the invitation and I'm looking forward to the discussion over the next hour. Lovely. It is, it is an hour and so everyone uh, thanks for watching and do start sending in your questions now because they really do stack up and uh, I know we've had an immense amount of interest in this. Well look, um, we've got too much to talk about so let's plunge straight in and where I wanted to start was with uh, the Chancellor's statement uh, recently on the coronavirus response, the latest coronavirus response and it, you expressed concern about what Rishi Sunak announced last week. What would you have done differently? Well, we, we did support a number of elements of what the Chancellor announced. Um, as probably people will be aware, we had been calling for some time for government to look at some of those active labour market schemes that have worked quite well in the UK previously. So uh, the example of the Future Jobs Fund obviously was there from uh, after 2008-9, but also the, uh, the work that the Welsh Labour government has been doing, a kind of similar programme for young unemployed people. Um, so we have been really pushing that quite strongly strongly. I'm very pleased that government seems to have listened to that with the Kickstarter scheme for young people. Of course, we really need to make sure those jobs are additional ones and that we have the linkage to um, you know, local employment systems that was there with the Future Jobs Fund. But that was really encouraging. Um, you know, Other areas where we said that you know, government should be open-minded around stimulating demand as well. You know, It's good to see some action um, in those areas. Um, I suppose, however, uh, we do have concerns around um, well, kind of two main avenues, really. I would say, first of all, um, clearly we're still in a situation where there's a major lack of confidence in the UK economy. Um, and, you know, much of that relates to whether people feel that the test track and isolate system is working properly, whether it's um, sufficiently responsive and, and able to, for example, avoid major additional uh, large lockdowns, as, as arguably we're seeing uh, currently um, in Leicester. Now, uh, we really think that we need to have much more of a focus on this from government. Um, you know, some would say it's a health issue, but unless people have confidence that they know where infections are, we're unlikely to see that additional footfall that's so necessary in so many businesses. So, you know, we, we really do need more of a focus on that. But then secondly, with the economic package, um, I think we are concerned, and in fact, it's interesting to see the OBR's research on this yesterday, that um, clearly this, this is a crisis unlike any other. You know, it is one when government has chosen rightly to close particular sectors, but that means that withdrawing 
the job retention scheme and the self-employed scheme across all sectors at the same time is very, very risky indeed, particularly when there aren't alternative sources of support available. Um, we're not convinced that the job retention scheme bonus that the Chancellor announced is going to do enough to incentivise employers, you know, particularly when they're already heavily indebted, to be keeping people on. So we would have liked to have seen a, you know, a shift away from the one-size-fits-all approach that's been taken uh, by the Chancellor to withdrawing those programmes. Something that's more targeted, learning from other countries around this, perhaps around short hours working schemes. Um, so we think otherwise that's, that is going to be pushing up unemployment in, in the weeks and months to come. Great. Well, there's a lot there. And, and I want to come back to some of those points you put in the middle about, about confidence and what can be done to restore it. But let's just stay on the jobs question for the mm -hmm. moment, where you, you've given us already quite a bit of detail. But this is obviously where the big focus is at the moment. And uh, and the government's uh, aim to try to prevent the, the, the big surge in unemployment that many people are talking about now. So you've talked you talked about um, not having one size fits all in terms of the furlough scheme and then and getting rid of that. Which sectors would you go out to protect at this moment? So extend the furlough, you know, give give them better claim on the furlough scheme scheme at perhaps extending that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first priority surely has got to be those parts of the economy that are still not allowed to reopen. I mean, you think about events companies, for example, um, different forms of leisure where they are still closed for the foreseeable future. I would say that has got to surely be the first priority, but then also considering other areas where, although they may be able to operate, they have very little chance of returning to full capacity. Um, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that necessarily this would be a case of continuing the scheme under exactly the same arrangements. You know, it does need to become more flexible. But I think we do know from other countries that unless you have some kind of wage support, if you have very, very uh, disrupted, you know, um, uh, supply chains and, and very, very much reduced demand, then the natural result is going to be additional unemployment, sadly. And I think we've had a little bit of a foretaste of that, you know, over the last couple of weeks, really. Um, and you mentioned the OBR figures, which are not great for those hoping, um, uh, like the chief economist of the, of the Bank of England, for, for a V-shaped recovery. Well, I mean, lots of people are hoping for a V-shaped recovery. Um, but it, it, just go back to that. You mentioned the events sector. Isn't the government there doing the, what you've said it should do and uh, differentiating between sectors? And it's saying, look, on health grounds, we, we can't let this one sector um, open up, but we are allowing other sectors to open up. Oh yes, I'm not. I'm not criticising the principle of having a differential approach to opening sectors. I think that is necessary. Um, clearly, that's got to be driven always by the scientific and medical evidence. That's absolutely critical, um, and it does look likely, sadly, that those businesses which rely on very close social contact with very large numbers of people, that they will be affected by public health related measures for really quite a long time. So, you know, I fully understand that. But then I would say that the economic response has got to reflect that different public health led reality. Um, so not having the support there continuing for those sectors which simply cannot open does seem to be a peculiar position to be adopting. And, you know, I've said many times that this will not be easy for government. You know, it, it is difficult to differentiate between sectors. Um, I know the Chancellor has been keen not to do that. He says that would be putting government in the position of picking winners. 
but effectively government has had to designate losers. It's had to say which sectors needed to close because of the public health emergency that we're in. And so therefore, I think the economic response does need to reflect that more. It does need to be more targeted than particularly what uh, much of what we saw last week. Okay, so okay, so let's explore this a bit more. Do you think um, that some jobs should be uh, are more important to preserve than others? We've heard a lot of talk about rebalancing of the economy in this uh, because of coronavirus, not not just generally, uh, and that the coronavirus may have triggered mm. some service jobs, perhaps from the the, the retail sector to to other uh, sectors. Would labour actually seek to use uh, the crisis to to protect some jobs but perhaps not others um i i don't think that this crisis i mean there's obviously a big discussion around what's occurring now sometimes using terms like you know opportunity etc i mean I, I i personally don't think that's a helpful way of looking at things i mean clearly we're seeing in the uk extremely large numbers of people suddenly you know in many cases some older workers becoming unemployed for the first time in their lives um and you know pretty catastrophic impacts on their incomes. Um, but I do think in the UK, we seem to be, however, in quite a distinct position compared to many other economies. Um, so we see, for example, quite a low rate of additional vacancies coming back into the UK jobs market, whereas in countries like France and Poland, they're almost back to where they were previously with vacancies. That does seem to reflect something about the balance in our economy, particularly around services, those social consumption related jobs being a much more significant part of our economy. Indeed, the Chancellor himself has acknowledged this. It does seem to mean that the crisis is having a greater impact on us now. And perhaps to an extent, it explains a bit why we didn't necessarily see that big impact on unemployment from the global financial crisis previously. I mean, we, we saw constrained investment over quite a long period, um, but that didn't feed through into necessarily un unemployment um, because many employers, were, you know, they were taking on additional people at relatively low cost, not necessarily providing then the capital investment so that those jobs were as productive as they could have been. Do we need to change that balance into the future? Yes, I absolutely think we should. But um, I think maybe looking at it through the, the prism of the kind of unemployment situation many people are facing right now might not be the, the best way of doing that. You did have, as you're, you're alluding to, um, um, very high um, employment rates uh, but, um, before coronavirus. And, and in fact, uh, unemployment at uh, almost record lows. Um, do you think the Chancellor was right to put the emphasis he did on the, the, the very showy bit of his, his statement, the meal deal, as it's been called, the eat out to help out, because it's aimed at exactly these jobs where we're sort of talking about in, uh, in hospitality um, and so on. I mean, we, we have been calling for targeted measures, um, but I, I think really critical to this is that issue around confidence and around really getting a grip on being able to identify where infection is spreading and being able to respond very, very quickly. Um, I'm sure people will have seen some of the polling evidence around individuals' likelihood to actually use those mechanisms. Um, relatively low take up from what I understand, still many people saying that they wouldn't want to go back into restaurants and cafes. You know, I really want us to get to a situation where people feel safe 
going back into those locations. And I don't think that's predominantly a question for employers. You know, I've talked to many businesses who've been working incredibly hard to make sure that their workplaces are very, very safe, that people feel comfortable when they're in them. I think it really is about getting that test track and isolate system working properly. And, you know, again, looking very carefully at what's going on in other countries where there's been a bit of a depression of demand or maybe even a substantial one, but not quite to the same extent as we're seeing in some parts of the UK economy now. So I think really more does need to be done to build up that confidence. Incentives on their own won't have the strong impact that they could do otherwise if confidence isn't there. I mean, you said it, you said in Parliament last week, it, it very much is it, um, the kind of theme you're arguing now that fear, fear is hurting our economy, that you know the incentives aren't enough. Uh, on their own to cut through that. And so would you put the weight, as you've been uh, um, alluding to in this, this conversation, on the improving the test and trace to give people that confidence? I think that is very important and I have called on the Chancellor previously to do that. I appreciate, you know, many people would say, well, this is ultimately a health question, but actually we, we do need to see this as something that's absolutely critical for our economy. Um, it relates to issues around education, of course, as well. Um, you know, we still have very large numbers of people um, who aren't able to work as they would normally because they are looking after children because they don't have confidence around schooling etc you know this is something that needs to be sorted out um, and and urgently and as I said it is uh, an area where we can look at other countries which seem to be further on with developing those systems and ensuring that there's public trust around them. Well let's, let's go on to if you like the second cluster of, um, uh, of things we're going to discuss which is really about around tax and and how to pay for all this and of course it's on the front page of lots of papers today that the Chancellor has uh, written to the Office uh, for Tax Simplification, uh, asking it to look at all kinds of things, including uh, rates of, of capital gains tax and even possibly um, that old uh, uh, question that's hung over British tax policy for, for decades of whether primary residences should continue to be completely exempt from capital gains. Um, you've said Labour's not calling for tax rises, we're calling for growth. What is your account of how the country ought to pay for this? Well, I, I really do think it's important that we focus on growth right now. I think that's absolutely critical. We know that actually that is the best way in a context of low interest rates, at least that is the best way to be ensuring that the debt is, is manageable, that we can then have a long term approach. Um, paying it off. I, I think that not having that focus on pushing up demand would be very damaging. And actually, you know, there's been some suggestions before today's um, uh, news around uh, capital gains tax, were some suggestions previously that there could be a kind of, um, you, you know, generalised income tax VAT or national insurance uh, rise and or cuts to public spending. I think that would be really quite a dangerous move at a time when the economy is very fragile and where you know so many people are very nervous about you know deciding to to buy a new car or to put an extension on their house or whatever it is. Um, you know now would not be a sensible time to be suggesting to people that you know either public sector job well in fact many of them are going in, in local authorities but that you know employment could be further threatened or equally on the other side that they could be subject to additional 
tax. Um, so I think, uh, you know, while, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting context of capital gains, because I remember not so long ago when uh, we were trying to encourage the Treasury to deal with some of the issues around um, uh, particularly non-UK investors with envelope dwellings and all this kind of thing and trying to get them to get a grip on this. And they're very, very resistant to doing that. Um, but, but I think right now that focus has got to be, I would say, on, on, on pushing up demand rather than looking at tax changes. Yeah, well, that, that's very interesting. So look, is Labour's plan essentially to look at increasing debt until the economy is back on track? Well, our, our plan is to try and make sure that we have more people in work, that we try and keep unemployment obviously down as much as possible, such that people then themselves are paying tax as well as companies, that companies are profitable so that they can be uh, paying corporation tax, etc. Um, that ultimately uh, is the sensible route currently um, in order to ensure that we can hopefully, you know, have a, a sustainable recovery. And if we don't have that, I mean, if we don't see that growth, um, you know, we can, we can kind of shift the deck chairs around, as it were, when it comes to taxation, but we won't be increasing the size of the ship. And that's really what we need to be doing right now. That's what we need to focus on. And I think arguably, I know it was a very, very different crisis, but we did see quite constrained uh, uh, growth in demand after the global financial crisis, particularly from 2010 onwards. I think we need to learn from that, not repeat the mistakes of that in our recovery from the current crisis. Well, this government said it doesn't, it doesn't even like the word austerity, never mind want to repeat cuts to public services. But I'm wondering then how you describe the difference between Labour's economic um, thinking and the government's, because we've got a government that, that is uh, willing to dare the bond markets at the moment and, and, and spend its way out of trouble, including paying people not, not to work. Um, and it doesn't want to talk about austerity and it doesn't want cuts to uh, public services. Where, where is the dividing line between you? I mean, I mean, I would say that actually um, the, the kind of rhetoric and the reality is, is slightly different here. Um, we know, I mean, I just alluded to it um, in the case of local authorities that, you know, some of them may be looking potentially to make redundant up to a fifth of their workforce, um, potentially within 12 months, actually, because of the financial constraints that they're under. Um, I think that's lacking the kind of longer term perspective that we really need. Clearly, local authorities have been given a critical role, actually, in getting local economies functioning and safe. You know, they're responsible for our high streets being safe and ensuring that consumers, um, you know, feel that if they go to those hubs of local economies, that they're um, uh, going to be safe when they're within them. So I, th I think that's very, very short-sighted. Um, I would say currently, you know, particularly we're trying to say to governments, please target that money where it is best Needed. I mean, we've seen some very, very substantial sums, for example, going into Test Track and Isolate, you know, major outsourcing firms being given a big role in that system. Um, you know, when we were saying for really quite a long time that we needed to build on those um, uh, kind of uh, building blocks of delivery, really, that were already there, you know, particularly local authorities. You know, eventually we had a bit of a change from government and uh, uh, finally a kind of hybrid system that's been created. Um, but so I would say it's it's not just... Uh, kind of about the quantum of spend, as it were. It is about, you know, where it's targeted, whether it's actually going to be helping those who are struggling the most. You know, I'd say again with that job retention scheme bonus, you know, in some cases you could see some really quite large firms benefiting from that. 
not clear whether they would then have to keep that value in the company, whether they'd still have to invest it in the UK, etc. Um, we think a more targeted approach would have been much more helpful here. Mm. But I'm still fascinated by this this kind of broad differences uh, between you. Um, all right, let's pick pick one. Um, uh, you mentioned outsourcing and uh, John McDonald's, your predecessor, and his his financial team. Uh, we sounded pretty cool on the idea of outsourcing. Is that one difference uh, between Labour and and the Conservatives? The Conservatives are still very happy to to work with that. Well, I have been really quite concerned, as I mentioned, around some of what's occurred over recent months. Um, we have seen very, very major contracts um, provided to firms. Um, now, I would say it's not it's not necessarily the firm's fault. I mean, in some cases, the conditions were really pretty peculiar, you know, for example, not being required to provide timely data to local authorities around where infections are, not being required to indicate, um, you know, the addresses or, you know, even streets where infections are, seems to me to be a pretty strange way of structuring a, a localised testing system. Um, so I don't think it's kind of uniquely down to the firms themselves, but certainly you know, the contracts do not seem to be delivering. This is something that Rachel Reeves, as our shadow cabinet office lead, has been pushing on very consistently. Um, and we are concerned that we're not seeing the delivery um, that is required there. And actually, you know, it's kind of frustrating. There seems to be a bit of an allergy within government to looking at those public sector bodies who are already there, already keen to deliver some of those services. You know, Greater Manchester, for example, offering to many local authorities, offering to not being taken up in the offer and then belatedly being involved when government discovered that, yes, a completely outsourced system doesn't work here. Um, uh, well, it, you know, it took them too long to, to come to that realisation, we would suggest. Mm. Okay, just coming back to the taxes question, because it is very live at the moment. Um, if if uh, Rishi Sunak, Conservative Chancellor, proposes um, a rise in, uh, in capital gains tax, perhaps equalising it with income tax rates, uh, even breaks that big taboo of... of um, uh, of levying some kind of capital gains on on people's primary residence, their their, their home, uh, surely Labour is going to go along with that. I, in fact, I can't, I can't believe I'm asking this in, in, in a way which positions so sort of uh, reversed from the traditional. But if you get a Conservative Chancellor proposing these things, surely Labour goes go, goes along with it. Well, we would need to we would need to look at the detail of it, obviously, and what the impact of it would be. On the economy, whether it's properly targeted, etc. Um, I mean, above all, what we really don't want to have are kind of last-minute decisions around tax without um, appropriate scrutiny or without proper planning. I mean, arguably, we would say we saw that with stamp duty, where you know we we would have wanted to see an approach which was much more focused on affordability um, and social housing delivery. But once that had been announced, um, or rather leaked, um, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to uh, then say, well, it shouldn't happen because clearly, you know, it has a dampening impact on the housing market. Mm. Um, so we, we'd want to look very, very carefully at any proposals. Um, you know, clearly for a very long time, I've been saying that the UK tax system is insufficiently progressive. That needs to be dealt with. But do I think that tax changes right now are what government should be focused on? Um, as I said, no, I really don't. I think they must be focused above all on trying to ensure that that, that growth comes back, um, that demand is increased. And that, that surely has got to be their absolute priority. No, this is fascinating, and you've been, you've been absolutely consistent about this. Um, um, people have been watching with enormous interest to see whether 
the, the Keir Starmer uh, shadow cabinet and, and your voice within that, your very important voice setting out the economic uh, thinking of, of, um, of Keir Starmer's team, um, is, is, um, marks a, a, a big break from that of Jeremy Corbyn's team, of which you were part. So can you, can you describe to us the extent to which they, they, they are the same or different? Well, you, you probably won't like this answer, uh, Bronwyn, but, you know, whenever people ask me which part of the <laughs> which part of the Labour Party I'm from, I, I just say, well, I'm just Labour. You know, that that's what I am. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the circumstances... <laughs> yes, you're right. I, I don't particularly like the answer because I, I, I would love your, your view of whether they are the same or really distinctly different. Well, I, I do think that, you know, these circumstances mean that everything has to be different. I mean, we, we are in a different situation. You know, clearly, um, uh, you know, some people would say, although I don't think it's it's a, a correct characterisation necessarily, but some people would say that one of the big dividing lines previously was, was over that that kind of quantum of, of public investment. And certainly we really did want to deal and continue to want to deal with the lack of resilience of our public services. I think we're seeing that in stark terms right now in terms of social care and indeed our NHS. Um, some people would say, well, now the government is is spending more, as you've just been suggesting, you know, doesn't that take that dividing line away? So, so does that mean that there needs to be a different approach from Labour? But, you know, as I said before, we, we are still very much focused on, you know, whether that spending is actually delivering, whether it's providing that resilience. Um, and, you know, many of those problems that, that we were focused on before in previous Labour administrations, clearly they haven't gone away, quite the opposite. I mean, they've been turbocharged by this crisis, you know, all the kind of labour market issues that we've long been seeking to highlight um, uh, and so forth. So um, uh, I, d I don't think there's a, there's a kind of big, um, enormous uh, kind of change there. I think circumstances are leading to, um, uh, you know, a different approach. I would, I would also say, actually, as well, um, that, that clearly, you know, we are in the middle of a, a national crisis. It's very, very important that we have a constructive approach to that. You know, I think that's that's a view that's, that's shared right across the Labour Party. And we've been focused on trying to get to solutions, suggesting solutions to government uh, rather than criticism for criticism's sake. So it's probably a slightly different kind of party political uh, debate that's going on right now as well. Is Labour committed, as Ed Miliband has, has said it is, to net zero by 2030? Well, we, we do believe that we need to see an accelerated timetable. Um, you know, as a parliament, we did vote for uh, the contention that we are in the middle of a climate emergency. You know, that's something that was um, passed by all parties. Um, so if we're in an emergency, we need to act like there is urgent um uh, there are urgent measures that can be taken and you know certainly and obviously I've, I've talked um uh, a lot to Ed Miliband and others uh, and business and other stakeholders around this you know we, we still don't see economic decisions routinely uh, being subject to analysis for their climate impacts um, I obviously called for that for the uh, measures from the, the Chancellor's statement that wasn't delivered. Um, I do think, as I said, you know, if we said that there's an emergency, then we need to make sure that we act like there is one. That means where we can really trying to accelerate um, that shift towards net zero. And I think, you know, it's, it's been very clear on that. Um, uh, uh, and I think we need to accelerate it as well as much as we possibly can. Um, we need to make sure when doing so, 
we take people with us, of course, and that we don't see um, very, very major dislocation as a result. I mean, uh, I would say aviation here is quite an interesting case where, you know, obviously there's there's got to be change in that sector because of the climate crisis. There is going to be a structural reduction probably in demand as well because of what's been happening around business travel uh, and so forth. But that we kind of see just just a big scrap there um, now, unfortunately, you know, lots and lots of jobs being lost rather than a more strategic approach, which would enable um, uh, restructuring, but not in that kind of, you know, very destructive way that's happening currently. Mm. Well, as you said, it is a crisis, but I, I'm not clear. You talked um, quite a bit about acceleration. Is that is that a commitment to 2030 um, or just to acceleration? Well, obviously, we um, have had a, a long debate around these issues within the Labour Party, um, including at the time of our previous conference. Um, but, you know, certainly, I mean, my view is that we should be trying to accelerate as much as possible. And actually, um, and you know, some people would say, oh, am I trying to duck the question here? I'm really, really not. I am frustrated that we have a situation where, you know, if we look at the 2050 target, for example, um, you know, that's something that's has already been agreed to um, even by the Conservative government, obviously. And yet, as I said before, we're, we're not acting like that is impacting on our current behaviour. We're not using those tests right now on what we do. So, you know, I accept that the target data is, is important. It is totemic. But actually, if we're not behaving like we need to be you know, seeking climate neutrality right now, um, then, you know, we can have all the debates that we like about what the target is, but we're not actually going to be doing very much to to reach it. And, you know, it just seems like so many people are, uh, you know, having a kind of manana approach to this. Uh, we, we really cannot afford that, particularly given we're going to be hosting the, the COP meeting uh, next year. Let me ask you about Brexit. Uh, and you're an MEP and you campaign to r remain um, and campaign with Keir Starmer for a people's vote. Um, can you see a situation where uh, the UK should extend the, the, the transition period and Labour would, would, would call for that? Well, we, we have been saying to government that they need to make sure that they deliver on their commitment. And their commitment was to get a deal. Um, obviously, Labour lost the last general election when we had proposed um, another referendum as a way of dealing with this question. We lost that argument. You know, I regret the fact we did, but we lost it. We've got to accept that. Um, the Conservatives won that election saying that they would get a deal. So clearly we've been saying to them, well, please, please make sure that you actually deliver on that. Um, I mean, it, it seems like there are some negotiations that are happening in a more meaningful manner now. We were quite concerned that for some time there didn't seem to have been uh, much progress in that regard. Um, but clearly now we, we really need to see um, uh, much, much uh, more emphatic developments in, in that regard. And certainly I've made clear that in my role as Shadow Chancellor, I'd be very concerned if we ended up in a situation where at the end of the year we could be seeing additional barriers to trades being put in place for many of those companies that, you know, if they're still there, they will have been really struggling over the summer and into the autumn with very disrupted supply chains and, and diminished demand. Um, so that, that would be the kind of, um, uh, you know, nightmare scenario that should be avoided. I mean, it does seem to me that there's quite a lot of will to be pragmatic um, uh, around, uh, you know, different sides. But as I said, you know, government really needs to deliver on that deal that it's promised it would get.
Just ask you finally what it's like being up against Rishi Sunak. Um, it is a well-known uh, tradition of of, um, of, of, uh, of people being a shadow chancellor and suddenly confronted, uh, not the whole time, but confronted with a chancellor who's doing very, very well. And Rishi Sunak has got some of the loudest plaudits, if you like, in this government and is thought to be doing very well at the moment. Is it, is it, is it, uh, does it add to the difficulties of being shadow chancellor? Um, I mean, I, I'm always someone who's focused on the policies rather than the personality, really. I mean, I, I've, I've always, um, you know, had a, had a good relationship with him. In fact, when he was a local government minister, I had some uh, some dealings with him and, uh, you know, really tried to maintain that kind of a, a cordial relationship. Um, uh, as I said, I think it's about, you know, really pointing out where, where the issues are with government policy, trying to get change in relation to them but you know quite frankly in the middle of a crisis like this it's in everyone's interest that where there are problems that they get fixed so that's very much the kind of approach that I've been taking you know rather than uh, I don't know a kind of very personalized um, approach <laughs> against one individual that's that's really not the way that I that I work. Okay, well, we'll leave that for the many pen portraits of, of the Chancellor <laughs> and his ambitions that are in the uh, in the papers at the moment. All right, let's go to questions. I've got quite a lot, and um, and they're, they're ranging over all kinds of things. Um, <laughs> let's um, let's start with one um, uh, from Thomas Smith, who says the immediate priority is rightly, in his view, jobs, jobs, jobs. However, looking to the medium to long term, what's the current Labour thinking on a four-day week? Mm. Yeah, so I think that's a, a very good question. And um, we were very pleased that the government adopted our call for jobs, jobs, jobs. I suppose flattery uh, comes from Im imitation, but no, genuinely, because we, we have been concerned that there there wasn't a stronger focus on um, particularly preventing unemployment than uh, we would have wanted to see. Um, as I mentioned before, I think my concern now, however, is that while um, government seems to have got the message a bit around active labour market policy with the kickstart scheme, although we still need to make sure that that will work as well as it can do, um, th there is then a big issue about preventing more people falling into unemployment in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, they're, they're kind of different policies that have been put forward in relation to this. I think a, a flexible approach to this is really, really critical, um, but one which draws from cases from different countries. And, you know, when we've been talking um, to government and saying that they need to look at changing the job retention scheme, that would be around um, having targeted support through it. Um, you know, looking at some of those short hour working schemes. Um, I mean, you know, some people would put that under the rubric of a, a four day week. You know, I'm a bit careful around some of that language because I think for a lot of people, they're really worried about the fact that they've lost hours. Um, so, you know, don't want to be in a situation where they think that we're calling for, for people to, to necessarily have reduced hours. But of course, you know, if you're thinking about it in a short hours context, that would be about government supporting, you know, topping up uh, wages, you know, how the, the kind of part time version of furloughs working um, in some sectors, but making sure there's then more support for those employers who, who really, really need it. OK, right. And thank you for that question. Um, let's go to another one from Julie uh, Chaw. <laughs> Uh, what do you make of the government's U-turn on Huawei? Well, uh, it's interesting. Um, I think it's been quite frustrating, really. For many months, we have been saying, um, you know, before there was all the kind of debate in the press around this, that government needed to have a strategy around our critical communications infrastructure. Um, obviously, this decision has now come quite late, uh, where you know, a number of 
issues are being posed as a, as a result. Um, we think that we need to have a, a long-term perspective, um, one which reflects security concerns. And, you know, again, we, we have been calling on government to make sure that, that Parliament is is abreast of those to the extent it's possible to, um, uh, you know, be open about this. You know, I understand that this is a difficult area, but we, we were calling for more transparency around this. But, you know, above all, for that strategy, um, you know, if, if we're entering a situation, it appears that we are, where we need to ensure that we have, in particular, more domestic capacity around some of this, then please let's have a strategy for that rather than what seems to be quite kind of last minute ad hoc decision making around it. Well, the government would say, look, we've got a strategy. In fact, we had one before and then <laughs> some things changed, uh, particularly the US position and US sanctions. And so now we've got another strategy, which is to get them out, not immediately, but get them out of 5, 5G um, you know, mm -hmm. over some years. Um, what, what's, what, what exactly are you, do, you, do you think it's wrong? Do you think Huawei should be included in uh, and, and, and kept as part of uh, of this technology or that, or that it should be more out, uh, more quickly out of absolutely everything? What, what is Labour's view of this? Yeah, I mean, you, you can use the word strategy, but if it doesn't actually determine what the, the future roadmap is for a, a critical technology and what the, the different considerations are and how they'll be dealt with, then, I, you know, I think sometimes it's, uh, you know, not necessarily adding up to the kind of strategic approach that we would want to see. I mean, I remember discussions around this last year where there were a number of people raising a variety of different concerns um, and the position that seemed to be coming back there was well we're, we're kind of looking into this well you know that that isn't really good enough from our perspective you know you do need to have a long-term perspective on it um, I appreciate that the position of some other nations has changed but you know ultimately and I think we've seen through this crisis that communications infrastructure is absolutely essential to our economic future as a nation and indeed to our security and so really this should have been something that was provided with much more engagement over a longer period. I mean Shion Wura from the uh, Labour front bench has been making that point for a very very long no, time from our, our shadow base team. I understand the rebarbative point of, 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 of saying you would have liked the government to spell out things and have its strategy and so on but I'm asking what the Labour strategy is. So do you think uh, that on Huawei and on China uh, uh, we are at the moment um, too cool, we're pushing China away, we're too warm, still got all kinds of Chinese involvement. You know, what, what is Labour's strategy? I, I, understand, I understand you think the government doesn't have one, but what, what do you have one? I mean, I, I think we we really need to be looking very, very carefully at this as a nation. And um, obviously, I've discussed this quite a bit with our shadow foreign secretary. Um, I think in the past, arguably, um, there's been insufficient consideration, you know, particularly of um, what I would describe as unfair competition issues. So, you know, we've got a new uh, trade regime that's coming into play um, that uh, after we've Left the uh, well now that we have left the EU and, and at the end of the transition period, um, now that would give us very very limited trade defences uh, compared to other nations. And you know we know that there um, has been dumping before that's been engaged in uh, by China. And you know we're concerned that there seem to be um, a, you know a very very uncritical approach there. I mean I, I knew from my own perspective when I was an MEP that it was the UK government that was pushing very hard indeed for um, uh, uh, for China to be treated as uh, always as a nation that would be uh, a fair trading 
partner. Um, I think that we, we do need to look at this in a more nuanced manner into the future. Um, it's taken quite a long time, I think, for, for government to realise the need for that. Um, I think, you know, we need to recognise very strong trading links between the UK and, and China while doing that. But we do also need to recognise the potential for unfair competition, which could be very injurious to our domestic industry. I have a feeling, you forgive me, that we we may have to wait for a fully fleshed uh, Labour strategy on China, but um, uh, we can pre- perhaps um, come back to that. I've got another one, if if, if, if you're okay to move on, with um, uh, from Sally Etchells from the National Deaf Children's Society, which says, how can we ensure that all the new job schemes recently announced are accessible to young people with disabilities? Now, I think that's a, a very important question. Um, and here again, we, we have been trying to say to government, you know, while, while we're pleased that the Kickstarter scheme has been announced um, and also some of the additional support for apprenticeships as well and, and traineeships, um, we really need to make sure that they are effective schemes, um, that they're sufficiently attractive to employers um, so that they're not just used to substitute, you know, lower cost young people for um, older workers, uh, but that they really are helping those young people who desperately need the support. I think that, you know, that's particularly the case for young people with disabilities, also the case for young people who are disadvantaged. I mean, we know, for example, the number of apprenticeships going to disadvantaged young people at lower skill levels has actually been going down quite a bit over time. Um, That really does need to be reversed. And I think for that, we need to have that coordination. Um, It's so necessary, coordination um, with uh, the different employers, groups, but also with local authorities in the third sector as well. You know, that that seemed to deliver quite well with the Future Jobs Fund previously. Um, But we have been trying to say to government that there was an enormous amount of effort that was necessary to get that infrastructure up and going. You know, it didn't just happen overnight. It required really sustained engagement and you're with the voluntary sector um, uh, very much representing some of those different groups who particularly need help etc. So we need to see now from government an an awareness of some of those challenges and particularly more of a, a willingness to see some control to those localities and to those other intermediate actors who have expertise rather than always trying to deliver things from the centre. Okay, thank, thanks for that. Let's go to one from Robert Morland, a former MEP. Thank you. Saying, uh, given that nearly all reputable economic forecasters estimate that Brexit will be harmful to UK economic growth, um, are you concerned about uh, Brexit's economic effect on top of the effects of, of COVID nineteen? And I guess what would you what would you do about that? I mean, I, I'm certainly concerned about the potential impact of a, a very weak deal or no deal um, if that does come at the end of the year. Um, I mean, it, you know, it's kind of fairly obvious, you know, I'm somebody who campaigned to remain um, at the time of the referendum. Um, you know, we, we lost that argument. And as I said before, um, you know, Labour did not win the last general election. I think we need to accept that. Um, the party that's promised that it could get a deal with the EU 
is now in government and they really need now to actually demonstrate that they can provide that deal, um, that they can make sure that, as I said before, at a time when so many businesses are very, very fragile, uh, that they won't then be harmed further as a result of, as I said, a weak uh, or non-existent deal. So clearly we're trying to do all we can to enforce that accountability onto government right now. Okay, great. Thank you. For another one, uh, tantalisingly labelled anonymous. It is a, a very good short, sharp question. Is it still Labour's policy to scrap universal credit? Well, yes, it is to the extent that universal credit is a system that clearly is not working and is not supporting people in the way that they need to be. I mean, Johnny Reynolds, my colleague, um, has done a huge amount of work on this as our shadow DWP secretary. Um, uh, I suppose a, a little bit related to the previous discussions that we've been having, I don't think we would be saying that right at this moment, you know, that there should be a reorganisation of the system. You know, the really, really critical thing to do with universal credit right now is to make sure that it's getting money to people that need it um, getting rid of the elements of it that are not working. So um, the fact that there's just a loan for the first five weeks, um, uh, so people aren't getting money when they really need it. So it's pushing them into debt. The fact there's still the two child limit, there's still the benefit cap, there's still only 30% of market rents in any given area covered uh, by universal credit that needs to go up, obviously, to the average cost of housing, you know, clearly. And there shouldn't be the same uh, level of savings conditionality either at a time when so many people are in crisis. So, you know, there are many, many changes that can, can and should be made right now to universal credit. Um, but we all know, you know, the huge amount of bureaucracy and administrative uh, uh, issues that have accompanied um, uh, the application of universal credit. I don't think right now would be the time to be unpicking it, but you know, would Labour want to see a much fairer approach to social security in the future, one that really does help families? Well, absolutely, we, we really would want to see that different approach. I mean, there are some in the government who would say, look, universal credit in this crisis has come into its own. It was only because of having a system that instead of having six different benefits had, had, had one, could get money out to people that quickly. And isn't this uh, the, the sheer city of it now that it is beginning to work, a reason for keeping it? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I completely agree with that. I mean, I, I, I've been genuinely very relieved that the computer system uh, delivering universal credit has not fallen over. Um, th that was a, a real concern, I, I, as I understand it, amongst um, uh, staff. Uh, that, that that could have happened. It didn't happen. And I am enormously relieved about that. So to that extent, of course, I'm pleased that you know the, the system continue to be able to operate. If, you know, of course, I'm relieved around that. Um, but I, I'm not convinced by many of those arguments. I mean, actually, you know, we, we used to have social assistance in the UK. Um, we do not have it to any intents or purposes anymore. I mean, we, you know, we don't have the system of uh, the social fund operating a local level anymore. Um, so I would say that, you know, <laughs> Okay, some some aspects, you know, to the extent that it, as I say, it's not completely um, fallen over. Uh, of course, I'm relieved about that when it comes to universal credit. But do I think that necessarily it's providing the support that people need? Um, I really don't think it is, you know, particularly with the fact that, as I mentioned before, people can only get a loan you know, a while after they've applied, they're not actually get that, getting that money that they really need. And I think that risks quite a lot of indebtedness. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And I've got a couple on, on climate change coming back mm -hmm. to that. The, 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 the difference. So we've got one from George Muscat saying, um, 
what should the government's priorities be ahead of what is now next year's uh, COP26 um, UN Summit? And how should the UK um, deal with um, what he's called climate skeptic countries such as China and the US? Mm. So from here to the summit, what should it do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, you know, in some ways I'm quite optimistic about the current period um, for a variety of reasons. You know, I think that actually business sentiment has changed quite substantially around the climate crisis. You know, we've seen many different firms calling for a, a green recovery. Um, we've seen major, major investment packages, of course, in Germany, France, South Korea, Denmark, you know, a whole variety of them focused around a, a green recovery. Um, some steps in that direction in the UK context, but we would argue that they're not matching the ambition of those in other nations. Um, so I'm relatively optimistic. It does feel like we're moving in the, the right direction. Um, but I would go back to that point. You know, I think if we need to uh, avoid any charges of hypocrisy, and that, that is so critical when it comes to dealing with nations where some political actors might present themselves as, as more sceptical. If we're to avoid those charges, then we, we really need to be um, assessing policies, you know, continuously against their contribution to the climate crisis. Um, I think that's very, very important indeed. We can't just be saying that we will put these kinds of questions off into the future. Um, that's got to be an assessment that is done right now. Um, and I think, I mean, in terms of the the kind of approach of other nations. Um, you know, ultimately, I, I think we've got to try and be optimistic around this. We've got to use whatever leverage we have with other nations to try and uh, bring them on board. You know, who knows what the political situation might be in the US next year, for example. We don't know at this stage. We don't you know. Things may, uh, they may, they may change in a different um, direction. But, you know, I think there are other countries where the UK has a strong historical relationship, Australia would be an example where, you know, I think if we can really work together uh, in advance of the summit, it would be very encouraging indeed. I suppose major concern that I have from a kind of governance point of view, and obviously Institute um, is better placed to comment on some of these issues that, that, than I would be, is just around the, the kind of bandwidth issue, you know, are we going to be able to um, have those really, really intense uh, discussions um, at ministerial level that's necessary and we, we haven't had the, there's meant to be a shadow cabinet subcommittee sitting around the climate crisis as I understand it that was you know scheduled for many months, I think it may have only met once, you know, we really do need to be doing quite a lot more around this agenda to show we're serious about it. Mm. Okay, okay, thanks for that and as I said there was a, a, another one um, and um, it's anonymous. It says we, uh, I'm going to hazard a guess, this is a civil servant in the Treasury. We try and account for climate change in how we take decisions through carbon pricing in the in the Green Book. Is this a call for government to significantly change those prices? A, a technical question, but saying, look, we, we, we do try and do this already. And the Green Book, which is the, yeah. as I'm sure, yeah. IFG aficionados will know, is, is, is how the Treasury goes about assessing uh, the costs and benefits of different projects. Um, it has, has, has an element of climate change assessment in there. Absolutely, it does. And it has a focus on natural capital as well um, and various different approaches to um, assessing benefits and, and, and utility. Um, I mean, for, for, from my 
examination of it and you know obviously this is an area where government has been um, uh, kind of active as well considering whether aspects of the Green Book should be changed etc. Um, I do think that a number of the elements could be tuned up actually um, genuinely. I mean I suppose one of the big questions is well is it always the Green Book that's driving uh, decisions around different projects or might other factors be coming into play? I mean, I'm not going to comment on that, but I think that's part of the elephant in the room here around kind of allocation of resources to different areas as, as well. Um, but to the extent that it's used, I do, I do think there are elements that could be looked at. I mean, for example, um, some of the uh, the approaches to calculating utility over time. I mean, do we need to tune up uh, utility in the future as a, a consideration? You know, currently it's discounted, and the viewers, you know, current consumption is um, is more valuable than that in the future. Well, probably that's not exactly where we want to be. Um, and I think also, uh, from my point of view. Um, kind of making those you know, you know really kind of hard wiring the assessment of natural capital more into the assessment of different projects would be quite helpful so i do think there's quite a lot that could be done in this area um and you know where we're really open for ideas on how we can you know make the system workable deliverable uh, but also really have bites when it comes to uh, climate issues and and generally environmental matters as well okay well th thanks for that um, let's leave climate change. Um, so we're, we're coming to the end, of, coming close to the end of our time. So I'm, I'm going to squeeze in a few more. Sorry, it's a, it's a more intense fusillade of questions than you get in real life <laughs> in our building. I'm, thanks for handling it. Uh, one from David Martin saying, an article in Tribune today argues that the government schemes are simply putting money into the pockets of owners of capital, while lasting recovery can only be achieved by putting money into the pockets of low paid workers. Do you agree? Okay, I'll try and answer this quickly. I mean, I, I certainly think that, especially when it comes to boosting demand, that it is critical to be, I mean, it's important from an economic point of view, because we know that people on lower incomes and middle incomes are more, much more likely to spend additional funds. But of course, it's also important for people's well-being as well and critically so especially given so many people are struggling i mean a quarter of uk families entered this crisis with less than 100 pounds in the bank you know we, we do need to be making sure that we support people um the first part of the question i think is one that that is less tractable at the immediate moment of onset of a crisis um i mean there would be two approaches to this you know either um you try and design that in to any interventions um, so you try and ensure there's a kind of sharing of pain, as it were, signed into interventions that can result in, in quite a lot of unintended consequences. I mean, local authorities are landlords in a lot of cases, for example. It's quite tricky to do that. Or do you say, you know, in the future, we should have a situation where, you know, particularly low and middle income people shouldn't be bearing the cost of a crisis that they didn't have a role in making and that we need to have a different approach. And I think probably the latter is what government needs to be focused on um, in the future. But that's after we've got through this current crisis and we've hopefully pushed up demand again. OK, I'm going to squeeze it to, to, to us. OK, one technical one. Um, how should the government manage the potential bad business debts stemming from the bounce back loan scheme and other guaranteed loans? Would you be in favour of a bad bank? which would manage those debts or perhaps making repayment linked to profits as those recovered? Yeah, I mean, the, the latter is something that's been suggested by a number of the business organisations. And it's my understanding that government is um, currently investigating 
whether there could be some form of kind of recapitalization effectively and or a kind of income contingent um, repayment of loan scheme. Um, I do think that that would be helpful um, uh, for government to look at. I'm concerned that it looks like we're going to have to wait until the autumn uh, now for any concrete measures in that regard. But I do think that, that government is going to need to be considering these issues really quite quickly. Okay, and just one final question. Um, uh, then on, on Scotland, and obviously Labour um, did have a big uh, presence of MPs in Scotland has been rather driven out of that while the Scottish independence uh, movement has been uh, uh, noisy and strong and we're coming up to uh, elections next year which will show how much um, strength the, the SNP actually manages. Do you think that Scotland could thrive economically as an independent country? I don't think that it could um, thrive to the extent that it does currently, no. I mean, I, I'm someone who, I guess, has a kind of foot in both camps, really, and uh, to the extent that I was brought up in Scotland, but uh, my, my family, um, a number of them had been brought up in England. My, my father had been, so I'm kind of a bit of a mixture. And, um, you know, I'm someone who really does think that actually together we can achieve more. Um, I think it's really important, particularly for the Labour Party, that we work very, very closely with our colleagues in Scotland and in, in Wales as well. Um, and I've been doing that very, very regularly, talk to colleagues right across uh, uh, the whole of Britain. I think that, that that's critically needed right now. Um, and I also think that, you know, we need to see as much coordination as possible at this time of crisis. Very, very important that, you know, where it's possible to be um, making decisions in an inclusive way, that that really should be happening. Okay, with that, we really have come to the end. So, um, Annalise Dodds, thank you very much for answering questions from me and uh, everyone. Terrific questions. Thanks for sending them in, um, uh, answering them uh, at, at such um, expanse. And uh, I really... Um, really appreciate that. Uh, everyone, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. And if we were in the building, I would say join me in thanking Annalise Dodds, Shadow Chancellor, but I'm simply <laughs> going to do that in person. Thanks very much indeed for coming. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.